The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. My people, this is Jay from Push Black with a special bonus episode of Black History Year. We didn't intend to be back until our season four premiere, which is coming this fall, but as one important holiday approaches, we had to hop back in the booth because we gotta talk about Juneteenth. Now, Juneteenth is a special day for our community. Some of us might cook out or visit a museum, go to a parade or festival, share stories in celebration of the day that emancipation reached the last of our enslaved ancestors. And while there's much to be joyous about on Freedom Day, a heavy question still looms. How do we celebrate our freedom when freedom still isn't in our reach? Coming up, a conversation with Ebony Underwood, social entrepreneur and founder of We Got Us Now, which is an organization built by, led by, and about children and young adults impacted by parental incarceration. She'll give us a first-hand account of her experiences with the carceral system, how the next generation of black youth are being impacted by it, and explore its connection to Juneteenth. But first, let's get into the history of Black Independence Day. June 19, 1865, Galveston, Texas. It was a city brimming with Confederate soldiers, many retreating to the idyllic state of Texas, seemingly untouched by the Union's promise of freedom. Here in Galveston, the Old South lived on. Black people here still plowed land and picked cotton for the white masters. They still had no legal right to sovereignty. They still were not free, or at least that's what they thought. These enslaved people had unknowingly been free for an entire two and a half years. You see, amid the Civil War, President Lincoln enacted his 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, declaring all enslaved people legally free. And while this declaration was more symbolic than true, since the policy didn't apply to those enslaved in Union states, the Emancipation Proclamation remained significant for the following reason. It was the first time the federal government had acknowledged that the freedom of black people was essential to America's progress and success. So on that June 19th day, Union soldiers descended upon Galveston with their message of liberty. From here, celebrations erupted in the black communities. 
finally able to call themselves freedmen and freedwomen, the former enslaved rejoiced on what would soon be known as Juneteenth, reveling in the promise of liberation. And for about 15 years, it seemed like we had a real shot at it. Some consider the Reconstruction period that followed to be a golden era for our ancestors. Amendments to the Constitution saw black people granted freedom, the right to vote, and full citizenship. Black elected officials popped up throughout the nation. Communities were built for us, by us, and they were thriving because of it. This progress, though, was soon interrupted by a surge of racial terrorism. By 1878, disgruntled whites had weaponized the law against our people, using it to strip crucial rights violently from the hands of blacks for decades to come. Today, we still see evidence of this continued weaponization. Look at police brutality, housing discrimination, and to a new form of slavery that holds our people in bondage to this day, mass incarceration. And while the carceral state has significantly targeted and oppressed the black community, we must not forget the promise of freedom embedded in Juneteenth. Because when we celebrate this day, we're not just commemorating that taste of freedom from all those years ago. We're also celebrating our ongoing struggle for liberation in its fullest possibility. Ebony, what does Black liberation look like to you? Freedom. Black liberation looks like freedom. And what freedom means to me is economic stability. It means housing opportunities. It means educational opportunities. It means health and wellness. Black liberation to me means all those things. I can dive in deeply into each of those. But if I just blanket that statement, for me, it means all those things. And having the freedom and the ability to have the best of all those things. And how does the work that you do work towards that vision of Black liberation? Well, I I founded a nonprofit by the name of WeGotUsNow.org. It's a national nonprofit nonpartisan organization built by, led by, and about children and young adults who have been impacted by parental incarceration. And the reason why I founded it is because that I was a daughter of a parent that had been incarcerated for 33 years. My father was released this January 2021 after serving 33 years in prison. And for the majority of that time that he was incarcerated, I had never spoken publicly about him being incarcerated mainly because of the trauma, because of the stigma, because of the shame of incarceration. Not knowing that there was this thing called mass incarceration until about seven years ago, and not knowing that people were actually empathetic to the issue. There were no support systems for my family and I um, when my father got arrested. There was nothing. And to me, that just was heartbreaking especially because I found out that people were empathetic to this issue. And then I realized like, wow, when people go to the military, they center the children. When people are divorced, they center the children. When there's a death of a parent, they center the children. When a parent is incarcerated, what happens to the children? Nothing. There is no support systems. And so the work that I do was intended 
in a really strength-focused way to acknowledge, uplift, and support the daughters and sons that have been impacted by parental incarceration because they did nothing wrong and we were feeling the collateral consequences of mass incarceration on a really deep level. And I felt like in order for us to be truly liberated, we needed to see us, we needed to hear from us, we needed to know that you are not doomed as there's been many myths and negative narratives about who we are and where we will be and what we will become, that that is not true and that we are not destined. There is no criminogenic gene where we're destined for uh, prison and that we're thriving. And I wanted to show them. And so how I did that was we got us now, what we do is we have four guiding principles that we work from. We engage, educate, elevate, and empower our historically invisible population so that we can build community, number one, because we're a historically invisible community. There are 2.7 million children under the age of 18 who currently have a parent that's incarcerated. But the epidemic is that over 10 million children at some point in their life have been impacted by parental incarceration. It's incredible, those stats and that raises a clear question in my mind is like, why is that not being discussed? Why is that not being centered? You mentioned that they've been doing this to our families since forever, separating our families. Talk to us about that. I came into the work of advocacy, not as an advocate. I came into this work from my personal experience, really wanting to just make my family whole and hopefully, you know, have my father who has been a very present father throughout the 33 years that he was incarcerated in our lives, I wanted to make certain that we would be reconnected to him because we were separated from him for so long. And so I got a really clear indication by going to the Brian Stevenson Museum. The Brian Stevenson has this memorial slash museum. There's two spaces in Alabama, in Montgomery, Alabama. I had an opportunity to visit both of them. At the museum, he gives a historical context of slavery to mass incarceration and where we've been as black people in this country. Really, really, really powerful museum. When I was there and when you first enter the space, very interestingly, there is like a timeline and he shows part of the timeline. I couldn't believe it when I watched it and you can't take pictures or anything when you're inside, but part of the timeline, they showed how, families and children were orphaned because they were separated from their parents. So I'm like, oh my God, you know, we hear about the borders, you know, we rarely hear about children of incarcerated parents, but we've been hearing about children of incarcerated parents. I'm like this children of incarcerated parents thing has been happening. You talking about separation at the borders, like this has been happening since before all of us were here, like since slavery was started, this has been going on and there's documented historical context to show this. That blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And so it really just made me think about like, wow, this is crazy that we've been going through this for so long. If you think about incarceration, incarceration happens on, you know, multiple levels. So there's, being incarcerated at a county jail, there's being incarcerated at a state prison, and then there's being incarcerated at the federal level where you can be anywhere in the country. And so my dad was in federal prison 
and he was in eight different federal prisons across the country. I'm from New York. So he's been in Indiana. That was the first place he went. Then he went to Georgia. Then he went to West Virginia. Then he went to upstate New York, Raybrook, New York, which is sounds great, right? He's in New York. I was excited. That's eight hours away from where I actually live. One way. So in order for me to visit him, we would have to get up at three o'clock in the morning because visiting time does not change. Visiting time is 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. So you have to make it between those hours. So we would have to get up hours before, the night before, just to actually get there to have a proper visit so that we can spend quality time with him. And then, so it's 16 hours of traveling just to visit a loved one. And for me, I believe my, my siblings and I, we were the fortunate ones. Most people can't even afford. Again, that goes back to what I was saying initially, the economic stability that we need, right? That's what Black liberation is for me, economic stability. When you take a parent out of the home, you're immediately creating economic instability in that home. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to afford to visit. But as I began to do the work of We Got Us Now, oh my God, so many children and so many families don't have the opportunity to stay connected in person and visit. And on top of that, our love is being monetized because if we can't visit in person, then there's phone calls and every phone call costs. It's almost like chattel slavery, like the way that they moved our families around. And now with technology, there's all sorts of tablets. And now they're talking about video communications that they're using as if like right now we're visiting. This is not a visit. There is nothing that can replace a hug or a kiss, you know, or to see your parent in person to know that they're okay. There's nothing that can replace that on top of having to be charged for it. (laughs) So, yo. At the end of the day, our liberation is, is minor. It's, it's minor if you think about it from other people in our society's perspectives, things that are just natural to them, things that, you know, just happen for them. For us, it is not the same. And we want equality. We do want economic stability. We do want liberation. We do want to have proper education. We do want fresh foods in our communities and in our environment. I could go on and on and on. I just think about, you know, the totality of it. And so wellness is at the centerpiece of the work that I do because I feel like not only are we emotionally traumatized by having had this experience, but, you know, you got to take care of yourself. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com sale. And book your free consult today. So I'm interested in digging more into the family separation aspect of this. You've shown how you learned about the history of separation. And I've always wondered whose interest does it serve to keep black families separated like this? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, man. 
whose interest? Honestly, you know, that was a question I always asked for so long. Why would you separate a mother from a child? Like, why would you not take into consideration that this woman, yeah, I want to incarcerate her, but let me think about her family structure. Are there little children in place? And who is going to take care of them? None of that is considered. We got us now is working. Thankfully, fortunately, we've been working to alternatives to incarceration. And in 2020, in this last bill that was passed, in that last COVID-19 package, the bill that was passed, we got appropriations, which means dollars. We got $3.5 million to programming around the country for alternatives to incarceration. So basically what we were able to do was advocate for legislation that made sure that there, these $3.5 million were sent to these different states so that they can ensure that the programs that will ensure that families or parents that would end up incarcerated now will not end up incarcerated and can be in a program that is an alternative to incarceration because separating a mother or a father from their child when they're under the age of 18 is not beneficial to the, their children. There has to be alternatives and we need to look at the root of the problem. You spoke about the impact and the trauma on you and your family directly. Did you see similar situations in your community? And I'm wondering what impacts you've noticed on a community with millions of black parents separated from their families. It, it really is devastating the way that, you know, this has been done to our community. It has serious effects that is devastating. This mass incarceration thing is, is really, really devastating and horrific. And I call it a tsunami that has ripped across the country, devastating communities and ripping apart families. And, you know, I got into this work as a daughter, really seeking justice for my father, who I felt like had been incarcerated a long time. My father sold drugs when he was a young man and evolved out of that and became very successful in the music and entertainment business. He was a manager, a promoter, a publisher, and he was thriving. And he was 33 years old when he was incarcerated, 33, three days before his 34th birthday, he was incarcerated and his birthday is in December. So for me, Thanksgiving and Christmas and just that whole time in between, I would just be devastated because my father was arrested at that time. And my father was, a, was the patriarch of our family and he was very much a present dad. And holidays changed. The economic stability of our home changed dramatically. But I never even thought about the rest of the community. I never even thought about anybody else actually going through this until the Obama administration said something about mass incarceration and how they wanted to reform the criminal justice system. And I said, oh, wow, really? Because my father had been fighting all along you know, trying to get into court. That's another thing. Our current president, and I guess it was just the wave of the time of where people back in, like, you know, the early 90s and, yeah, early 2000s, it was this whole wave of, yeah, mass incarceration, tough on crime, and they passed these bills where they were really, really tough on crime. And 
President Clinton basically just made it where you had a certain number of appeals. There was an act that was passed and signed, and it basically kept people out of appealing no matter what happens. So you can completely change your life. You can completely, you know, rehabilitate yourself because that's what the system of corrections is supposed to be, right? Isn't it a place to correct yourself and rehabilitate yourself? And they instituted some laws and legislation that basically said that no, no matter what happens, there's no avenue for you to have relief. And as I began to dive into this deeply, the thing that got me, I had no idea prior to getting into this work that this existed. But the thing that got me was that there was this term that I've heard, and it was called children of incarcerated parents. And as I began to really dig and dive deeply into the work, I became a source justice fellow and really figured out that it was huge, that this population was huge, and that daughters and sons were extremely devastated and that they had no clue. There are no instructions of how to operate when your parent is taken from you. There are no instructions. So I wanted to begin to build our community and really just build a a group for us, a safe and inclusive space for us to connect, for us to have conversations about how you're feeling, how are you doing, you know, what's going on in your life. You know, aside from the law and just trying to get back with your parent, we need to take a few steps back and just figure out, like, what are we doing? How, How are you? Are you okay? You know, having had such a traumatizing experience, are you, are you okay? And what does that look like if you're not? And how has it showed up in your life? And I only know this because I actually had to do these things myself before I could be outward in public with my own story. So much of my father being incarcerated affected my relationships, reflected my upward mobility in life, you know, my education. It affected the way that I parent. I have a son. It affected the way that I move in my life. So much of this, so much of this experience has affected me. And the most devastating part that I was so unaware of was the emotional impact that it had on me. Because this was my parent and it happened to me at such a young age. I think what happens, and it's not just me, I thought it was just me. But it's all daughters and sons. In order to survive, we have to keep moving. So there is no time to really be emotional. There's no time to feel pain. You can't feel pain. You have to deal because if you feel pain, you may die. Like it's really that serious. This is the person that brought you on the planet and now they're ultimately just like gone from your life. So how do you survive this? For me, it was music. Music was the thing that kind of just like brought me to a calm space. And I guess what it ultimately did was help to suppress the pain for me because, oh my God, I I didn't realize until I actually addressed the situation, how devastated I was by my father's incarceration and being able to speak about it and talk about it has been so cathartic for me. But there were moments in the beginning of my journey where I was like, in so much pain and I had deep wounded pain, deep seated pain. And that's not just me. That's so many daughters. I met daughters and sons. I met a daughter. She told me this story. She said her mother was incarcerated. Her mother and her father were both incarcerated when she was two years old. 
she didn't get to see her mother for the first time till she was 10 because she had elderly grandparents. Her mother was in federal prison. And the only way that they could see her was if they drove. And so they had to drive 14 hours to go visit her mom in a prison there and back because they could not afford to stay at a hotel. So they went to go visit her. And you know what she tells me when she visited her mom? She said, I remembered her smell. I said, the power of, a again, that just goes back to the essence of family and parenting. I'm like, how you, you've been separated from this woman for eight years. This is so deep. It's so deep. We got us now. We built an actionist community. We say actionist because for us, we don't like to call ourselves activists. We feel like as actionists, we want to take action and really see real change happen as far as legislation. For us, it's really changing laws. That's what it's about. It's action and advocacy. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. I'm interested in Juneteenth, right? It relates to freedom. But what do you think of when you think of Juneteenth as it relates to all of this? I think what resonated for me and, and the work that I do around Juneteenth is that I, I didn't realize it made me think more deeply about the holiday and like what the holiday entails and how much they value so similarly the things that I value. And then it goes back to culture. It just made me realize how culturally we do this intuitively, even if we don't know, but how Juneteenth, the whole holidays prior to it becoming nationally recognized, it made me go back and deep dig deeply into what it was. And I saw that our elders, the people that were enslaved, they honored education. They focused on prayer and forging roads for what our future could ultimately be. And that's such a beautiful tradition. How does it make you feel knowing that while we celebrate Juneteenth, this is a celebration of a certain type of Black freedom, but there is still a different type of slavery going on? Oftentimes when I would visit my dad in those visiting rooms, I would reflect on that it is captivity, that it is slavery. And it's like, wow, where are our Black men? They're all in here. You know, I, I just remember going up and it's just like visiting and you see so many Black men, majority, in those visiting rooms. And Black families visiting their family members. To me, though, I have to say, I'm hopeful 
And for me, the word hope is an acronym. It means hold on, pain ends. And I'm hopeful that we're on the road of changing. Having conversations like these are essential and necessary to bring light to some of the devastation that has happened to our communities and to never forget. Like now, you know, there's certain legislations that have passed that have been helpful to some of us, and we're still fighting for that legislation, right? We're still fighting for that cultural accountability. That cultural accountability is so necessary. We have to ensure that we are keeping everybody culturally accountable. And so I'm hopeful that things will change. I'm hopeful that all of this is not for naught, and this is not in vain. All of our efforts are not in vain. Like, what we're doing actually will mean something and be documented in history, you know, so that we will not be forgotten and it cannot be forgotten. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, A people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Avani Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.